Well, good morning, everybody. I'm back. <laughs> uh, it's so good to see you all here today. Um, it actually joys my heart uh, when I see our congregation sitting here waiting to receive uh, teaching from the Word of God, uh, both here in person and uh, those of you joining us on the live stream. Okay. I'm not technical, so I just call it whatever I heard somebody else call it. Um, this morning, we're starting back in our teaching in the book of Genesis. Uh, we took a little break the past several weeks discussing our core values here at Maricopa Springs Family Church. I want to thank Leonard right now for his teaching last week on generosity. Um, not an easy subject to preach on. I think he did a great job. In fact, uh, he actually broke the giving box. So uh, I think it was like in, in tatters. So good job, man. That's, that's definitely God was in it. Genesis is divided into sections by generations, or in the Hebrew, taladots. Each segment focuses on an important descendant uh, of a certain patriarch. Uh, prior sections, for instance, were associated with uh, the names of Adam, Genesis 5.1, Noah, Genesis 6.9, uh, Isaac, Genesis 25, 19, you get the idea. And in Genesis 35, the generations of Isaac focused primarily on Jacob's story and ended with uh, uh, Isaac's death at the conclusion of chapter 35. Genesis 36 uh, briefly described the generations of Esau. And now begins a new section the generations of uh, Jacob, which focuses primarily on Jacob's son, Joseph, born to him by his beloved wife, uh, Rachel. We're going to be reading today uh, from Genesis uh, 37, verses 1 through 36, so if we could uh, turn with me there. Genesis 37, starting verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, 
But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to, to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then, he will say that a fierce, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the, blood, the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you are God, and your name is I am. You are eternal, sovereign, and deserving of all our worship and praise. In, the, in your loving kindness, you have created us. But like sheep, we have gone astray. We have sinned against you, O holy God. We have all turned to our own way, choosing sin over righteousness. Yet you chose to be merciful to us, gracious to us. By your will you decreed that your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, should die an atoning death on a cross to reconcile us back to you. Today, Father, we recognize your right to run our lives, your right to run our businesses, 
your right to run our homes, your right to guide our lives, your right to be all in all in us. Today we proclaim, not I, but Christ be honored, Christ be loved, Christ be exalted. Not I, but Christ be seen, Christ be heard, Christ be known. Not I, but Christ. Holy Spirit, teach us today, illuminate your word, guide us in your holy purposes for us that we may be planted firmly in the center of your will. And we pray this in the name that is above all other names, Jesus. Amen. So, looking at this passage, uh, this chapter, uh, this message could be about a couple things, right? It could be about, uh, it could be a message on bad parenting, showing favoritism, right? Uh, it could be a message about... Uh, how God ruined Joseph's life. In other words, God's disruptive faith. Um, but let's, let's see where Scripture takes us today. But first, let's get warmed up, all right? You get ready to get warmed up a little bit? All right. I was listening to that song, and it's, uh, here I go, ad living already, man, five minutes in. <laughs> it was talking about making noise, right? And, and it, that, that just, it, it got to me. So here's some questions, and, and by the way, uh, Eric, I loved the questions that you asked. I love any questions that lead us to think about where we stand with God, where we stand in our relationship with him. So here's some questions. Do you believe there is no sweeter name than Jesus? Everybody believe that? Do you believe in the blood of Jesus, that there's power in the blood of Jesus? Do, do you all believe that? Amen. Do you believe that God only has your best in mind, our best in mind? Do you believe that? Do you believe in the absolute sovereignty of God? Do you believe that, he, that by his providence he's going to work out his will for you? Do you believe that? Well, here's another question. How well do you do at not being the center of the universe? Good at that? And that's a little bit of a dramatic question. So let's get a little less dramatic. Have you ever been resentful that a friend or an acquaintance seemed to get all the breaks in life, all the recognition? You ever feel like that? Looking back, I found myself uh, having that mindset. I remember where some got a pr uh, promotion over me. I remember uh, losing promotions in the Marines to someone that I deemed undeserving. Or maybe we look at others and we see all the ways they are being blessed, even our friends who are not saved. Why should they and not us get all the attention? Why not me? Isn't there a country song, Why Not Me? Yeah. I mean, what am I, chopped liver? By the way, who likes to eat chopped liver? I mean... But I've seen this emotion surface on other occasions, in other areas of people's lives. What I'm talking about here is envy. And this surfaces in every one of us, whether we care to admit it or not. Today we're continuing in Genesis 37. The story shows us how envy, or jealousy if you will, can consume us. We're also going to see how God will utterly disrupt our lives. We will see his providence at work in the lives of Jacob and his sons, Joseph in particular. And at the end, we will see that though envy is ugly, Jesus is beautiful. 
So let's do a quick review since it's been some weeks since we left off in chapter 36, all right? Since God's specific plan of redemption started, uh, kicked off in chapter 12, we've spent considerable time looking at Abraham, his faith and his failures. And faith is the overriding theme with Abraham. We spent a short amount of time looking at Isaac. And Isaac's kind of like the middle child, right? Uh, he doesn't quite get as much attention as the patriarchs above him and below him. But we saw there the plan that was progressing. Then we looked pretty closely at this character named Jacob, and he was definitely a character. The main thing that stands out with Jacob is that he was a weasel, and yet somehow God sets his affections on him and sticks with him. So grace is the overriding theme with Jacob. And by God's grace, Jacob makes it. If you look at 37.1, uh, we see that Jacob lives in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan, the promised land to his grandfather Abraham. He has become a people in the place of promise. God has protected him and prospered him. So end of story, right? No, not quite. There's much more to take place. So we keep going through verse 2, and we're given uh, another account of, or I, I believe it was Taladot, for my scripturalist friends out there. And we are introduced to Joseph, and he will take up most of the remaining 13 chapters of Genesis. Now the tone, the themes, the style are all going to change in the last 13 chapters. If faith is what characterized the account of Abraham, and grace was the controlling factor of Jacob's life, then we will see that providence is the overarching theme of Joseph's life. It's the story of God's invisible hand guiding the circumstances of individual lives and human history to advance his plan. And that's what providence means, basically. Now in this narrative, uh, Joseph is clearly the hero. And if you just sit down and read the whole story in one sitting, you'll, you'll be left with this feeling that Joseph is near perfect. And actually, it's quite a contrast when compared uh, with Jacob. Most of the account of Joseph is glowing, uh, but let's hold our horses here, all right? Let's not lose sight of what has been so obvious up to this point in Scripture, that throughout Genesis we see that humans are fallen. And actually, the Joseph account starts with a 17-year-old boy bringing a bad report. So what does this mean, bad report? Well, there's different interpretations regarding verse 2. Uh, Joseph was assigned to, shepherd, to the shepherding crew that consisted of Dan and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of uh, Bilhah and Zelpah, Rachel and Leah's maidservants. And after working to pasture the flock with his half-brothers, Joseph brought a bad report about them to his father. Now, the nature of the report's not given. The Hebrew phrase sometimes meant a smear or sometimes meant something misleading. It could also mean something slanderous. Other applications implied something hurtful, something miserable or disagreeable or even wicked. But I think it's safe to land on the fact that Joseph made his brothers look bad. 
And to say he was lying cannot be said for certain, but it does appear that Joseph misrepresented his brothers uh, to some degree to his father, and his father believed in him, causing uh, the brothers to hate Joseph. So nobody's perfect. We're all in need of grace. Moses, the author, wants us to be clear on that from the beginning. From here on, Joseph is painted, again, mostly in a positive light because Joseph provides the best analogy to Christ in Genesis. And a little bit more on this later. Now, verse 3 tells us that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And this favoritism, it's a generational sin, actually, that keeps being repeated. Isaac favored his firstborn, Esau. Jacob, even though he experienced the pain of that situation, didn't end the cycle. He instead placed favorites with his youngest, the son of of his favorite uh, wife, Rachel. And again, this can be a big problem for uh, us parents sometimes as well, especially if you have multiple kids in your family. It's it's, it's sometimes... um, we do play favorites. I don't think we intend to, but it just kind of comes out, right? But we have to be careful. So Jacob favored Joseph and made him a richly uh, ornamental robe uh, for him. And again, here we come up against somewhat of a, a translational uh, conundrum. Uh, it, it may not mean multicolor, but instead might be referring to the length of the robe. But either way, it shows special affection that Jacob gave Joseph and not his other sons. Clearly, Jacob has set Joseph apart from all the other boys. And now we see that God has set Joseph apart as well. Joseph has a dream, which God used to communicate something uh, of the future, something of his plan uh, to his people. And actually, Joseph has two dreams. And it's going to play out in future passages in Genesis. So I'm not, I'm not going to be the spoiler alert guy here. The first dream has Joseph and his brothers binding sheaves of grain out in the field. When all of a sudden Joseph's sheave rose up and stood upright while his brother's sheaves gathered around him and bowed down. Now this interpretation is not overly complicated. Joseph will be elevated above his brothers and they will bow down to him. The second dream was similar. This time it was the heavenly bodies, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, which is a dream. Uh, uh, Joseph had 11 brothers. And all bowed down to Joseph. Again, it doesn't take much to figure out what this is all about. In a sense, Joseph will be the center of the universe, in a sense. Turn with me to verses 10 and 11. And let's read this together. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. When I read this for a second time, I was, I was taken back to, to uh, Luke uh, 2.19, you don't have to turn there, but uh, this, this, this thing about keeping the saying in mind was, was what struck me. 
And in 219, Luke 219, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, heard all these amazing and grand things about the baby lying in the manger in front of her, it says, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So already, uh, it's going to Jesus in my, in my mind. So now it gets, starts to get ugly, right? Looking at the brothers' response, we see that they are filled with hatred and jealousy. They cannot stand the idea that their younger brothers should rule over them. But it gets even uglier than that. One day after the older boys were out grazing the flocks and the sheep, uh, the flocks, and Joseph was back at home hanging out with his younger brother, sipping iced tea and maybe watching video games, I don't know. Israel sends Joseph out to check up on his brothers. Kind of quality control mission, if you will, right? And I can see Joseph with his clipboard and his fancy robe and the keys of the shiny new donkey on his way to Shechem. Anyway, he's off on this on five-day journey with instructions to report back to his father. Well, Joseph gets there, and he can't find them anywhere. This man finds him, uh, then he, this man finds him wandering in the field and asks him what he's looking for. Joseph tells him, and the man directs him to Dothan. Now, as a story about Providence, this is an interesting detail to me. Uh, what if Joseph hadn't run into this guy? Right? Anyway, he goes on further to Dothan, and we read, starting in verse 18, they saw him from afar, this is the brothers, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. See, this is where hatred and envy leads. A desire to not, to, to not only have what the other person has, but to make sure he or she can't have it. To destroy other people, ultimately murder. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. Sounds pretty vindictive. This is premeditated fatricide. It's the same word used to describe what Cain did to Abel back in Genesis chapter 4. Now look what happens next. Reuben speaks up. So who's Reuben? I think they named a sandwich after him, right? <laughs> well, he's the oldest, the firstborn. He's the one who should have had the privileged position. But remember back in chapter 35, he slept with Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, and his dad's concubine. And it was a power play on Reuben's part to attempt to usurp his, his dad's authority and reverse the way things were headed with Jacob's favoritism uh, of Rachel's children. Well, he's still working for his dad, so evidently that didn't work out too well. In fact, try to do anything to mess with the will of God and see how far that takes you, Right? So Reuben changes his strategy. And he says in verse 22, Let us not take his life, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Well, I guess the logic here was that they would be innocent of his blood, but still be able to get rid of Joseph. 
Now, it's interesting. Um, have, you ever, have you ever rationalized sin in your life? Try to make it seem less than what it is. Try to make it say, ah, oh, it's not so bad. You know, I think that's where we get the term white lie, right? Still a lie, right? But notice that the text tells us that Reuben might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. That's verse 22. Altruistic move? No, I don't think so. Reuben wants to be the hero. He wants to gain status with his father. Now the rest of them, they agree to his plan. And then Joseph arrives. And what do they do? They mob him. They give him a good brotherly beating. They strip his coat and toss him without remorse into a dry cistern or pit to die. Then look at what they do next if you have any doubts about their callous, evil state. They sit down and eat their lunch. I guess they really worked up a big appetite, right? Pretty cold-hearted, wouldn't you agree? April shared something with me this morning. We were talking about this this morning before service, and she told me uh, before the service this morning that Joseph's brothers were shady. <laughs> Man, were they ever. Later on in the story, in chapter 42, 21, the brothers confess, right? And we're going to see that when we get there someday. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty, of con- we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. They just sat there and ate their uh, Reuben sandwiches while their brother moaned from the bottom of the pit and pleaded for help. Right? But it gets even worse. While they're eating, Judah, another competitor for preeminence, gets an even better idea, so he thinks. Instead of just leaving Joseph to die, they can make some money on it. Turn with me to James chapter 1, if you would, verses 13 through 16. And we read in Scripture here, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire, uh, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth, gives, uh, brings forth death. You see the spiritual principle at work here, folks? Sin begets sin. So let's get back to the scheming brothers here, all right? Now they spotted a caravan of Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt from Gilead. Scripture says they were carrying balm and and gum and and myrrh. Then Judah says in verse 27, Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. So they sold him for 20 shekels of silver, which comes uh, comes out to about two per person. I'm sure they thought this was a pretty good deal. Now, evidently, Reuben must have been somewhere else. 
maybe tending the flock, or maybe he was ordering a tasty dessert to go with their lunch. I don't know. Anyway, Reuben returns only to find out the brothers sold Joseph. And this put a big damper in his plans, didn't it? To be the hero by rescuing Joseph. And in verse 30 he says, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Man, these guys are totally out of control. Now they take Joseph's robe and they dipped, dipped it in the blood of a slaughtered goat. Then he took the robe of many colors, including now the color of blood, to their father saying they found it. And Jacob, recognizing the robe as Joseph's, said, a fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. And his sons and daughters came to comfort Jacob, but he refused to be comforted. Does anybody see the bitter irony here? I bet Bob does. Jacob's sons used their brother's clothing and the blood of a slain goat to deceive Jacob. Just as Jacob had long ago deceived his own father Isaac with his brother's clothing and the skin of a slain goat. Jacob's deceit had indeed come full circle. Uh, in non-Christian parlance, uh, you might say that his karma ran over his dogma. I think it is clear that when we've uh, been seeing this, this mess that sins makes throughout the book of Genesis, I mean, it's, it's clear to see what a mess sin makes. And today's passage just looks at it from a different perspective. It's the manifestation of sin in the form of envy. In Mark uh, 7, 21 through 22, Jesus said this, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. How many of these sins were manifest in the brothers, if you look back through this and start applying it, right? More than just envy. And yes, envy is a sin. And the story of Joseph and his brothers, it brings it alive. It, 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 makes, it makes it real. Envy is the emotion that's, that produced, uh, envy is the emotion produced when the desire to be the center of attention is mixed with the reality that someone else is. You're not getting recognition. You're not getting the promotion. You're not getting the credit for that idea. I stole it from me. That was my idea. And on and on and on. This happens among siblings. This happens among church leaders. Among roommates. This happens among everybody. Everyone. Do you see it in you? Here's a question you can ask yourself. Do I see other people as a threat, or do I have a heart that wants them to succeed? 
even if I'm not seen as the one that's successful? Or how about this? Do I ever find myself sizing myself up against other people, comparing myself to other people? You ever do that? We want the attention. We want the recognition. We want the status. We want to be the center of the universe. Envy is ugly. So this is how envy looks interpersonally. But in reality, you can certainly say that the fall was a result of God envy. Man wanted to be the center of the universe instead of God. Wasn't that the crux of the serpent's temptation? You will be like God, Genesis, Genesis 3.5. You will be like God. And since the fall, we can't stand the thought of God being the one who gets all the worship, all the praise, all the attention, all the credit. Ask yourself, why is it hard to obey? Why is it hard to do his will? Why is it hard to pray? Why is it hard to worship? It's because we've placed ourselves above God and declared that we don't need to be dependent on him. That's when that stuff is hard. So we've addressed what's ugly. Now let's look at what is beautiful. All right? I find it so very interesting that we're looking into this, we've been looking into this overarching theme, uh, which is providence, and then we can step back and see that God in his providence has orchestrated history, right, in such a way that the life of Joseph pictures and points towards the life of Jesus some 2,000 years later. Think about it. Jesus actually is the center of the universe. Amen? The sun, the moon, and the stars bow down to him because he created them. The preeminence of Jesus is perhaps nowhere better stated than in Hebrews chapter 1. Now due to time constraints, last, last week or two weeks ago I went a little beyond. <laughs> so I'm only going to read parts of verses 10 and 13 of Hebrews 1. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. Think of Joseph's robe. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? It's all about how utterly supreme, preeminent Jesus is. And he's beautiful. Check it out. Just like Joseph, Jesus was his father's beloved son. He is unique. He is exalted. He is favored. And people couldn't handle that fact. They hated Jesus. People today hate Jesus. 
In fact, the more good that Jesus did, the harder the religious leaders tried to kill him. Just like Joseph's brothers, we read that the Pharisees plotted how they might kill Jesus. You can find that in uh, Matthew 12, 14. In Mark 5, 10, it says that Pilate knew it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. Joseph was sold by Judah for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold by Judas for 30. Just like Joseph, Jesus was ganged up on. I'm going to get like you, Leonard. I'm going to get emotional here. He was beaten. Stripped of his robe, and Jesus was actually left to die. People gambled to see who could get his clothes while he hung on, in agony on the cross. Moaning in pain, crying out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just as Joseph was an innocent sufferer who didn't uh, give in to the mentality of victimhood, and we'll see that later in Genesis, so Jesus was a truly innocent sufferer who willingly laid down his life and was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so that he did not open his mouth. And now we look at the pain of the father. In Jacob, we see a picture of a dad losing a son. The drama's gut wrenching when you read this. And at the cross, the eternal father and the eternal son's eternal fellowship was broken. As the perfect son became sin, and the father turned his face away. Jesus is the ultimate Joseph. He is the true center of the universe. He is beautiful. And sadly, it was our envy that drove him to the cross. Our hatred of God. And yet, in that suffering, though we intended it for evil, God meant it for good. Praise his holy name. In the depths of suffering and evil, Christ, Christ, was displaying the heights of his love and mercy. Dying to pay the price for envious, self-centered, hate-filled, murderous people like us so that we could be able to worship him as the center of the universe and to find our true satisfaction and fulfillment. In conclusion, I beseech you to repent of your jealousy today. Right now. Realize that there's ugliness in your soul that is threatened by the success of others because you want what they've got. Confess that at the core you have refused to worship God and instead tried to install yourself at the center of the universe. Look to the cross 
Look to the cross and see the beautiful display of Christ's glory there. You see how it works? Seeing Jesus as supremely beautiful is the antidote to jealousy. Once you recognize the ugliness of your envious heart and you see the beauty of the cross, then you can sing, amazing love, how can it be that thou art my God shouldst die for me. By bowing down and worshiping Jesus, it puts everything in its place. And your desire is for his glory and for the good of others. And then we learn to say, along with John the Baptist, he must increase, I must what? Decrease. And then we can begin to have that attitude towards others, an attitude of love. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love does not envy, it is not self-seeking. We can rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now in wonderment and awe of the beauty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask you today to remove any envy from our heart that might reside there. Maybe we don't see it. If we don't, show us, convict us, Holy Spirit, so that you can deal with it. Let us be dependent on you, O God. Let us see you as our sovereign. Let us be at the center of your will always. Let us take this this grace and mercy that you've shown to us and take it to others. Share it with the world. And show them how beautiful Jesus is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.